Welcome to episode 254 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. If you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. If you like Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, I hope that you leave a five-star rating and a comment. Your ratings and comments help new people find the show. Or even better, if you know someone that you think will like the show, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I knew told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 254 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guests this week are Monica Ogden and K.P. Dennis. Monica is an award-winning disabled Filipina-Polynesian British storyteller, actor, and comedian. K.P. is a black, non-binary, multidisciplinary artist, producer, director, and activist. Last summer, Monica and K.P. took shows to fringe festivals across Canada. They joined me to discuss why the fringe circuit tends to be so white and the racism, both overt and covert, that they experienced. We also discussed the systemic racism in theater in general and what the mostly white theater scene in Canada should be doing about it. KP, Monica, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Um, one of the, uh, uh, I always like to know how people describe themselves as artists. Um, like for example, I describe myself as a writer and performer, but everybody has their own way of describing the way that, that they want to be described as an artist. So what, how do you guys want to be, how do you like to describe yourselves as artists? Great question. <laughs> uh, I struggle with this because most of the time uh, I don't know if I am an artist. Uh, so um, I think what I generally introduce myself as is Filipinex, uh, Polynesian, British artist, um, and accidental comedian is often what I use nowadays. <laughs> um, and always, you know, adding my pronouns, she, her, and they, them as well. I That's kind of the basis of how I like to introduce myself. Mm-hmm. And KP, how about you? Yeah. Yeah, great question. I also struggle with this because um, in my early career, I was like mostly a poet. So people were like, oh, you're a poet. And I was like, no, like I do more. So I'm like a interdisciplinary artist but I also really like the word creator because I create and I can use any medium in my but I can I can try you know so but creator I don't know it doesn't seem as like intellectual as an <laughs> interdisciplinary artist so yeah a creator is such a good word though as like it 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 doesn't 
tie you to one thing. It it, it sort of just says, I can do whatever. Exactly. But then some yeah. people are like, oh, well, like, oh, jack of all trades, master of none, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually such bullshit because i know people who are jacks of all trades and they are masters of most of them so yes that's the goal <laughs> yeah, i feel like creator um, works really well in so many ways because a lot of the pieces that we work on together we're like all creating in the room all the time like a thousand creations are going on all at once mm. so creator makes sense you know yeah now when you guys when you guys are creating shows together are you is it is it do you write in advance or are like you, like you describe you're creating in the room as things go? Yeah, we create in the room as things go and like depending, like different shows I think have different needs and with COVID right now, we're kind of working online, but um, yeah, we like brainstorm, we improvise, we kind of like find like the heart of it all and like the different sections and kind of like build it together um, from like scratch into a whole show. Mm. it's a rough outline monica <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely uh, like improv is for me a huge part of it because my background is in improvisation so things like writing and i don't know what other people do uh things that kp has always done uh i'm so unfamiliar with so i really have to mm. yeah, put it in my body which is definitely a challenge with uh, COVID and doing things online now and mm. meeting over video calls and stuff i think it's it's also a great way to do it as well. Um, I have lots of disabilities. And so mm. uh, that makes things a little bit more accessible sometimes. But also, <laughs> with what I was talking about before, am I really a creator right now? I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm just uh, in my house all the time. So. <laughs> I mean, I know what that that's like. I feel like we're all kind of in our house most of the time. All the time. With the occasional sanity walk. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um now I'm curious about you guys work together and you've worked together on a lot of projects and we'll get to fringe because I really want to talk about your fringe tour last year. Yeah. But I I'm really curious about how your creative partnership came about and also like what is what are your theater origin stories? Ooh, theater origin story. Wow. Um, I started theater as like a child in England. I was born in England. And the first show I remember doing was like the like nativity plays. And I first played like Joseph. And I was like, I want to be the angel Gabriel because he has all the monologues. And the next year I got the role because <laughs> I'm a workaholic. And then um did theater throughout my whole life and then high school we went I was in Ontario and they like cut a lot of the funding and so there used to be um like a like a end of year like production and it got canceled and so I was like this this is the only thing worth living for so I wrote a bunch of plays I directed all these plays I produced the whole night and like made this whole thing happen and I remember like hearing the applause after one of my shows and being like, no, this is what I have to do for like yeah. the rest of my life. This yeah. is it. And so I went to UVic and then I dropped out because of racism and institutions being terrible and just started working in the city, became youth poet laureate. And I met Monica working on a show, which maybe Monica, you can talk about. And then, yeah, I've been working ever since. That's the coolest origin story. 
<laughs> I don't have it that cool. <laughs> yeah, I for me, uh, I did not uh, fall into the art until like high school, um, and it was kind of by accident. My like former best friend, who I now realize was mistreating me the whole time, uh, was uh, wanted to be an actor, and I was like okay, I'll come into drama class with you, sure. And then I ended up being way better. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, like, even back then, even when I had no ego, I could still recognize that I was better, which felt good. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, I just continued to pursue it. It was really, like, improv was a huge part of high school for me. Um, And then continued improv after I... Uh, graduated and joined Paper Street Theater Company in Victoria. Um, And then, yeah, improv just kind of lent itself to so many opportunities that got me into shows and made me realize that theater was this space where I could... At that point, I didn't know I was a creator yet, but um, it just felt right in some ways. Uh, but then of course it all kind of unraveled the same way with going to theater school and (laughs) being a horrible racist experience. Um, I also dropped out. We are Mm. the dropout company. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I feel like I, I have no way like eloquent way of speaking about all of that time, but it was very tumultuous. And, uh, I've gotten to a point where I, I left theater. I went to YouTube. And then I came back to theater and now I'm like, do I need to leave theater again? Like, do I really like doing this? <laughs> I don't know. So I think there, yeah, there's a place for me in it somewhere, but, uh, and it's what the work that we do, but yeah. it's been a hard origin story or, or at least yeah. it feels like there's been multiple origin stories, I guess. Mm. You know, that's kind of, I think that's kind of a healthy way to look at it. Cause a lot of people will get to a point and they'll be like, well, that didn't work. That's over. Yeah. Um, but if you, if you look at it like an origin, like each one is an origin story, it's kind of like going into the chrysalis because the, the caterpillar dissolves into a goo before building itself back up into a butterfly. And it's sort of a thing that we all do when we get to the end of a terrible thing, we have to put ourselves back together. Definitely, definitely. And I really feel like COVID's been kind of good for my artistic practice because I was like, you know what? Like, who am I as an artist? What is it? I feel like taking this time to like think about it and figure it out. And I feel a lot more confident in my artistic practice, which is really awesome. That is really awesome. And I think this is like, it's interesting because there's, you know, there, there are, there are theaters that are making statements about Black Lives Matter, and those are pretty empty statements. Mm-hmm. And there are some yeah. other theaters that are trying; they're stumbling. But some of them are 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 doing the work. But at least they're examining in a way that they couldn't if they were that they wouldn't. Sorry, if they were if they were trapped in their cycle of production. Um. And some are doing better than others. I think actually there's very few that are doing really well, but they're out there. Um, But I think artists too are examining where they are and, and what happens, especially considering that like, you know, theater is essentially going to be the last thing that comes back Mm. and trying to figure out what, what that means and what is our place in creation. Mm. 
Yeah, and maybe that it's a good thing that theater's the last thing to come back. Well, you know, I, I have thought about so many times, like when I've been in a theater and as the lights go down, there's somebody coughing over there and there's somebody coughing over there. Somebody sneezes, somebody sniffling. And that's pre-pandemic. If we open the theaters too soon and a bunch of people start to cough, there'll be panic Yeah, in the theater. I wouldn't go. Like, everybody get their gross selves off of me. No thank right. you. <laughs> right? Right? Oh. Um, but I do want to talk about um, you guys did sort of a big uh, fringe tour. Now, KP, when you were in Toronto, when I met you both, uh, you were not performing a show, but you were um, you had directed uh, Monica's show. And uh, I think you were. Did you work on the creation of that show as well? Yes. Yeah, I was co-creator and director. Nice. Um, yeah. And but when you guys now Toronto was Toronto your first stop or no? Yes, it was. Okay. Yeah. And then you then you went west. <laughs> um, and we talked a little bit, Monica, when you were on the big uh, group uh, episodes um, about, you know, Fringe in Toronto. You talked about and your show talked about uh, racism in the Fringe. And I do want to take a, a second to talk about your experiences going to the different Fringe festivals across Canada. Which ones did you go to? Uh, we, yeah, we started in Toronto and then we went to Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Victoria, and Vancouver. Um, mm-hmm. Almost all of those stops we toured Monica versus the internet, which was the co-creation between the both mm-hmm. of us and KP directed and I performed. And then um, in three cities, so uh, uh, Winnipeg, Edmonton, and Victoria, we did another show called Love Dub, which has been touring for a couple of years. Um, and that features both of us and Tony Adams, our other collaborator. So you were doing, Monica, you were doing two shows in some of those fringes. <laughs> well, really all of us were, because all of us okay. were. Yeah, oh, of course. Like, yes. Yeah. Just, like I was a performer in both of them, but mm-hmm. like, you know, Tony was stage managing, mm. um, Monica versus the internet, KP was there like every day, you know? So really all of us, it was wild watching us, like, especially the cities we did two shows, like all of us pack up from one venue and hustle it over to another and like the exhaustion and everybody looking at each other, like, why are we doing <laughs> That was actually going to be my next question because I've done a fringe years ago. I did a fringe tour and that was exhausting. Heck, yeah. Like one fringe festival can be exhausting just doing one show, but to do two, was that an intentional challenge that you guys set for yourself or is that just how things happened? Yeah, I, I think I guess it was an intentional challenge like we knew it was going to be hard I don't think I realized how hard it was going to be um but it was a, it was a good challenge for the spirit that's for sure <laughs> such a nice way of putting it <laughs> yeah um now I I mean the the when I did a fringe tour I did it I was a group of us we there were I, there were five of us we were doing the show and we did a number of the same cities. And I have to say that when I look back on those those fringes and the people that were touring, um, how to how to put this? They were white people. Mm-hmm. It was like fringe 
and the fringe tour tends to be extremely white. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've talked with a few people who, uh, who've said to the, who's, who've said that they would not go, uh, to many cities because they, they don't know what it would be like for a black person to go to those cities or what, you know, those kinds of things, like what would that situation be? So I want to talk about some of the experiences that you had in those cities. And then we, I want to transition to talk about what do fringe festivals and CAF need to do to make fringe a better place and a safer place and a more welcoming place for people of color? Yeah. There's some big questions. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we start with, um, do you, do you have, are there stories that come to mind that when you think about uh, uh, your experiences on the circuit? Uh, numerous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's actually probably too many stories to fit into this uh, capsule. Um, but uh, yeah, there are definitely, uh, we all kind of chatted about each of the cities prior to, like of what knowledge we had about each city, um, if we knew anybody there, specifically BIPOC artists, um, mm-hmm. you know, like what, if we had any support systems in each city. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, each city was so different and each brought their own lovely brand of racism. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, sorry, as I'm thinking back <laughs> on all of this, there are definitely uh, fringes that we decided not to go to because of things we had heard um, mm. and really wanted to prioritize our safety as best that we could. Um, mm. But if Bad things happened in every single city, regardless of if hmm. the festival itself was good or we met wonderful people, which we did. There were incidents in every single city, and all of those have been reported back to all of the fringes, which we'll talk about hmm. eventually. But yeah, KP, I don't know if you have one that you want to <laughs> use as a jumping off point. Yeah, I think two just came to me, which is one was in Saskatoon, um, which as a festival, like the runners were like pretty good um but outside one of our shows a white man came and he was like picketing our show he was like don't come see the show this show is racist towards white people <laughs> blah 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 um which was a wild time i was like wow okay <laughs> sure um and then in general on the circuit because you kind of travel with the same people mm-hmm. and they're all white for the most mm-hmm. part and they also like they run lots of different activities like nights for themselves and comedy is a really big like theme in their nights and i've yet to go to a single night and not experience some sort of racism or like racist mm-hmm. act because i guess racism is funny to the white sphere of comedy um mm. but those are the two things that popped out at me right away do you want to jump off on those monica yeah for sure um yeah the the echoing the same thing of that uh you know while it's to be in some ways expected that we would face racism from the festivals themselves with uh you know systemically from audience members or you know randos on the street <laughs> um uh it was really telling the uh, artists and the racism that came from artists that uh, people don't want to talk about. 
on this market mm. or they want to talk about it, but with no BIPOC present, mm. that's problematic uh, because, you know, we were told so many times that, oh, we're talking about it. We're holding each other accountable or whatever. And, it, and that's just simply not the case. So the kind of isolation that we felt um, mm. was something that I don't think any white touring artist has ever had to experience because they fit in simply because of their whiteness. Yeah. Um, and because our shows were challenging things and were good shows and getting five star reviews and all, we we're doing all of the things that white people told us to do to be successful on the tour. Um, mm-hmm. But that didn't translate in the same way it would for them because they get five stars, they get sold out shows, they get all the accolades, they get whatever. We get five star shows and we get picketed, we get mm. harassed, we get stalked, we get all of these things because nobody could ever possibly believe that our team could accomplish those things. Mm. Um, and a lo- in a lot of times that you know things were happening at each festival, artists didn't step up and help us, they didn't support mm. us in any way. Um, or were actively being racist towards us as well, not mm. just, you know, pretending that they weren't. Um, so that was really, really hard. And I think it would have been very different if we had not been one of the only BIPOC touring people that year. Yeah. Um, which is something that I have been talking a lot with CAF because obviously with everything that went on on the circuit, um, there's <laughs> more stories, but um, we created a very close relationship with folks at CAF to speak Mm. about what was going on and to help them understand that there should not only be one touring company or a hand, like a couple people that are BIPOC. There should be multiple avenues where BIPOC can feel safe and feel just as ready to tour. But as it stands, touring is not accessible to BIPOC folks, to QDPOC folks, to disabled folks. It's mm. just not it at all. Well, I mean, speaking of, of disabled folks, there's also the issue of, of, say, for example, many venues that are not, not accessible. Like, for example, I know for years, Winnipeg Fringe has had their, their award ceremony where they give out the Jenny Awards in at the, the upstairs of a pub yep. with a very narrow staircase, yep. which is not a place where somebody who is disabled can get to. Yeah. Even if you're nominated, you can't, Yeah, you know, and that was, we, we went briefly to that and it was a uh, poop show. <laughs> I don't know if I can swear. So I'll say poop. Uh- <laughs> you can say, you can say whatever you want. This is the internet. Swear all, all right. you want. <laughs> shit show and we left early (laughs) um yeah yeah and obviously like uh you know they try to claim like we're not affiliated with the fringe we're not whatever but it's like it doesn't matter if you are doing something in the spirit of fringe whatever that's what Mm -hmm. you mean you have to make it accessible to people and like Saskatoon, our venue wasn't accessible to me Mm -hmm. uh and that was like and when we uh, you know, confronted them about that, which again, they, they did have a really great response eventually, but um, they were like, Oh, we didn't know. I'm like, how did you not know? I've been conversing with you for months about my disabilities, hmm. you know? So like, yeah. it's this, 
it's it's a lot of things that build up. Yeah, um, KP, I don't know if you had something to say on that. No, that was that was great. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the 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 issue part. I mean the being that like again in the years that I've been fringing, I am thinking and I can't remember a a a, a black indigenous or person of color who I saw on the fringe circuit. And that is tragic. And that is, but yet hearing the things that you're describing, it's not surprising. I mean, if you think about the things that you guys knew, like you guys sat down and you've talked about what you might expect in different cities, that means that you were sitting down saying what racist things might we expect in each of these given cities, which is a shitty position for somebody to be put in. Definitely. And then especially when you're like staying in strangers' homes as well. Oh my God, there's that too. Yeah. Oh, Like I showed up and it's a look that people get when they're not expecting you to be black. (laughs) Oh, Oh. Oh. okay. And I'm like, yes, I feel safe here. Thank you to old white people. This is good. This is good. Um, yeah, and I know that like it was like money barriers as well, and then people, yeah, not coming to see shows. I know like people mm. say that the first year is the hardest because you have to build your audience, and we really did do that. We found like a lot of amazing BIPOC people, um, but there was also one show that was touring that was like a black led show, and it was really really popular. And I went to go see it in Winnipeg with my black friend there, and we were both like this is actually a really offensive show. It was about Josephine Baker and the audience, like the sea of like old white people. And she's basically Mm. just like reenacting like all of this, like racism and like black voyeurism, like for Mm. this white gaze. Mm. And so then all the reviews are like, Oh, the show is amazing. It's like Mm. black. It's for black people. Like it is just such a good biopic, but it's like, no, it was, it was like, consumerness of black culture it was really like we both left like feeling Mm. sick and so it's interesting seeing what shows also do well on the circuit uh versus like the shows that are actually meant for the healing and upliftance of black and bipoc people well there's also there are the um the the you know the the shows that are you can have you have to have media support to bring out an audience Right. And often that support can come from uh, white media, (laughs) which often goes to white people. Yeah. Well, and, you know, these white led media are also leading the charge in racist reviews, uh, Mm -hmm. which we have gotten numerous racist reviews. We've also gotten Mm -hmm. the best reviews you can ever hope to receive as well. And even Mm -hmm. that didn't do anything you know I mean it obviously affected some things but we would have white artists coming up to us after we got our first five-star review being like wow you did it like condescendingly being like Mm. wow now now your whole tour set I'm like have you seen Mm. our shows (laughs) like have you seen us have you talked to us ever (laughs) like Mm. you know this is not over like a five-star for you means you know you don't Sure, maybe you don't have to work for a, a bit of the year, <laughs> not for us. Yeah, you know. Mm. So, yeah, the the role of of media in fringe, I think, is something that really needs to be like revolutionized in some way because we can't trust 
uh, media outlets in any way. We're still having this fight in Victoria right now where we got our most racist review of the summer in our hometown. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, my hometown, sorry, but you know what I mean? Like we're based on Victoria. Uh, so, you know, it's just like, it's never ending. It's not only that we have to put out a show that you have to care about your show and be proud of, of the content. It's that you have to waste your energy on talking to media that is hell bent on misunderstanding you. Right. Right. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, uh, the Tita collective doing their show, uh, Tita jokes at the next stage festival. Mm -hmm. And they essentially got a super racist review from a longtime reviewer, old white woman, um, who, who basically said, I didn't like this show. It wasn't for me. And, and really just sort of tore it apart because it didn't speak to her as a white person. (laughs) And that's aside from being bullshit. um, Like it's so small minded. And so um, like the audacity, sorry, the caucasity of, (laughs) of needing every show to, to be for you. Yeah. 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 I really, I feel like, what am I trying to say? With reviewers, um, which is, yeah, like Monica's saying, it's an ongoing battle we have, is that I feel like the point of a critic is to have a critical gaze and a critical eye and to be able to look at themselves in the piece and also look at the Mm -hmm. piece as itself. And so it's really funny the way, like, whiteness works. So the concept of whiteness works is that if it's not, like, for centered in that whiteness it's like incomprehensible and therefore it must be bad it's really interesting to see how that goes um yeah and so i i forget who the artist is monica you probably know but there's an artist who was like i actually refuse to let white people review my work and that's where i'm trying to get you know like if you're not gonna do the work to understand it or try you can't review it if you know if you don't know how to review don't review. That's simple. Simple. Yeah. It's uh, Yolanda Bonnell, um, who I yes. so, so much. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I absolutely agree with what KP just said. Like, that is what we're working towards is that that is not uh, who we're making our work for. Like, we make our mm. work for us, most importantly, but also so many other communities who have never gotten to see any of their stories ever represented, which I feel like is a great segue into our next show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Let's what, what's, what's the next show? Um, Our show that we are working on right now is called 100 white guys in an hour. Um, (laughs) The title says it all, you know? Yes. I'm I'm already feeling it. (laughs) And um, we are uh, we're in workshop mode of it right now for its kind of first uh, steps and iterations with uh, the Belfry Theater in Victoria uh, through their incubator project, uh, which is obviously a little bit slowed because of COVID and mm. with the Tremors Festival uh, by Rumble Theater in Vancouver. So got quite a few uh, folks helping us develop this right now, which is really fun and cool that's awesome now what uh, as you're developing this and and you know you're doing it in conjunction with a couple of of theaters um is there do you know when it will be on its feet or what will performing it look like in this streaming digital replacement if the if there is 
that aspect to it. Monica? Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> um, it's kind of up in the air right now. I think we've decided that we're really creating it with the idea that it would be on stage, um, knowing full well that that can change at any time. And especially like with our health, like we need to be prioritizing Mm-hmm. that um so our original plan of you know going over to vancouver and like doing the show like we don't know exactly how that's going to pan out but um i think we're we're trying the best that we can to hold on to like the small semblance we have of what theater creation could be um we mm-hmm. haven't been able to get in a room together yet but we're hoping maybe soon-ish distanced <laughs> which is hard for us because we spend most of our time hugging and cuddling each other so. you know this is this is just to just to jump in for a second this is like one of the hardest things about all of this is all of the people that we would normally embrace and hug and be near like that's not even an option. So like going, I don't even know what I would do if I was to go to a theater and see a friend. I'd be like, I guess we tap toes. Um, <laughs> you know, this is the thing we do. We type our toes together. Just it's one of those unfortunate and strange things that of, of the, the situation that we're in. Yeah. Um, what I mean, in terms of of what can you tell me about the what's the elevator pitch for this new show? <laughs> Uh, KP, you want to take it or you want me? <laughs> I think you're better at the pitches than I am. You oh go. <laughs> this one has evolved uh, over a while, but, you know, the title says a lot of it already. Uh, but we are uh, exploring a show with 100 white men mentioned over uh, the course of history from Billy Ray Cyrus to White Jesus uh, to Columbus and back again. Um, and this show is really a response to, uh, a lot of actually reviews and critics saying like, why can't you just make white art? And we said, okay, you want (laughs) you white guys and we'll do it better than you ever could. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it, it is evolving right now, but I'm really excited about, uh, the exploration that we get to do it may have musical elements and mm. dance and fun and really it's it's comedically driven so it's for us for our laughter for our community's laughter um and to really like roast 100 white men because what <laughs> could be a better use of time i mean <clears throat> i can't think of one <laughs> i i have no doubt that every one of those hundred men has it coming um <laughs> Uh, one, I mean, I want to actually harp on the the whole, um, why can't you make art, like white art? I mean, what the fuck is that bullshit? <laughs> like, why do you? Uh, okay, yes, thank you. Thank, yes, that is that is exactly it. Here I was being rhetorical and you have an excellent, an excellent, like, dynamite Sorry. response. <laughs> no, absolutely. Please, like, cut through the bullshit. And that's what it is. It is entitlement. Like, I don't know why you expect people of color to produce art for white people. Um, years ago, when, a couple of years ago, I was at the Halifax Fringe um, and 
uh, Natasha Ariana Morris uh, brought a, a version of her show, The Negroes Are Congregating, which is a show for, for about black people for black people. And she took that to Halifax. And the Halifax Fringe is very, very white. And she, the, they really brought out uh, the black community. And seeing that show was like going to church and um, like really going to church. And it was like, and being schooled and it was amazing and breathtaking. Um, but again, it was taking a show for a black audience to a place where it is mostly white people. Um, and I think, I mean, the sh- I think they did all right, but they didn't do, <clears throat> that show has done better. That, that show's last run in Toronto was a sold out massive success, deservedly show. So, but, like nobody should expect somebody like like Natasha Morris to do a show for white people. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah, definitely. And it really poses the question like w- you know, like I feel like growing up when there was a lot less like in like black and bipoc media, I grew up watching white shows on white shows on white shows and I could relate and I was like cool, you know, and so why can't like white people watch a black and BIPOC show and see themselves in it and not feel alienated or like angered from not being in it. Because they're stupid. Yes. Because <laughs> they're stupid. I'm sorry, but it's stupid. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. Um, <laughs> um, now, one of the things, I mean, you, you mentioned just to jump back for a second, you mentioned uh, being in conversation with CAF about um fringe and 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 what the fringe needs to do as a whole to become more more of a place that is safe and welcoming for 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 bipoc people um what in your opinion each of you and these are obviously non-binding and this is off the cuff but like what kind of things do you think that calf and the fringes need to do in order to fix the issue or the problem um well i mean we talk about this a lot especially over the past like couple of months as the the tour won't wound down i don't know if that's the right word but um and it's almost like it's basically been a year anniversary since we started the tour um which i like to say that you know our tour was so good that it shut down this year (laughs) (laughs) That's- you know, if you want to take the credit for that, I mean, you I burned up Fringe and, and now there's no Fringe this year because yeah. we just couldn't handle it. We we don't get credit ever, so I will take credit. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, so we were in conversation quite a lot after everything ended, so we didn't really ever quite get like a finish of a tour, which sucks. You know, like we got a bit of rest time, but... I think coming back home after that experience was really rough for everybody. Um, Mm. And so the conversations that we've been having are largely around, um, even though we didn't go to every fringe, we know that they all are perpetuating the same racism in a lot of the same ways. Um, Mm. Our most positive experiences were probably at Toronto fringe and Vancouver fringe who Mm. had a lot of BIPOC working as part of the festival who had people mm-hmm. we could trust to go to who we didn't need to explain everything to um so i feel like a lot of what needs to happen and this is, goes for theaters as well is that we need to mm. see some resignations 
we need to see white people who are running these festivals, if you can't make it a safe space for BIPOC, for any marginalized person, you're not actually doing your job. So you Mm. need to leave your job because that's what happens when you don't do your job correctly. (laughs) KP and I say all the time, like, I don't know how many times I've heard KP be like, why do you have your job? (laughs) Uh. That's and. I just don't see how people don't see it as simply as that. This isn't Hmm. like people get afraid when they hear like, oh, like people have to lose their jobs. Yes, they have to lose. Of course. Does that mean that they can't be involved in Fringe at all? No, not necessarily. But if you're running something into the ground uh, and only white people are benefiting, guess what? That's called white supremacy and it's not Mm -hmm. legal and it's not, you know, even though in a lot of ways it is legal, but that's a whole other story. Um, I, I think it really, yeah, we need to see like huge changes like that because at the CAF conference, which was held in Victoria this year, which we tried to speak at, but we're Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways kind of barred from that space. And so we wrote a, a nine page letter to the CAF, Uh, organization and to each of the festivals that we had attended to state everything that happened to us in each city and how they failed us. And it was read Mm. aloud at that Mm. conference, which I think, you know, in lieu of us not doing it ourselves for probably no money, uh, that was a win in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, But it, it put people on the defensive, you know, like there are a lot of people we have not heard from since then because they're, so afraid of the tides turning and this mm. this overwhelming change that needs to happen they see it as too big they see it as as you know coming for their <laughs> their jobs or whatever but if you're if we're sitting in a room at a at a calf conference which there was one event that i was at and you look out and it's all these white people without a care in the world just drinking together, having a good time, good to see everybody, whatever. And meanwhile, there are so many BIPOC artists out there struggling at their festivals, Mm. getting harmed by those festivals. Those people don't deserve to get into a room and pat each other on the back. They just Mm. don't. If you're going to get together, make it productive, you know? Um, So, and KP, I'll pass to you in in a second, but I really think that, yeah, a lot of resignations need to happen. We need BIPOC leadership. We need black leadership specifically to combat all of the anti-blackness that has been woven into fringe from the very beginning. And maybe that looks like a lot of what we know of fringe not existing anymore. And I think that is important. Like we can rebuild new things. We are as storytellers, we're the ones that are supposed to make better futures and to see better futures. So why can't we do that on a systemic level with these festivals? Yeah, I echo all of that completely. Um, yeah, especially the <laughs> resignations, please. Um, it's like, I feel like a question we've heard a lot on the tour was, how do we make a safe space? And I'm like, that's your job. You should know how, like, you, that's the bare minimum. So, yeah. I also an idea that Monica, I think, had before as well was, like, for the fringe lottery to make that, like, BIPOC only and to really offer up the space uh, to BIPOC artists. And 
I know for a lot of like white artists are like, oh no, like you're taking away my opportunities. But it's like, no, you've had these opportunities and you also make a lot of shows about nothing, about nothing. <laughs> and uh, if the space needs to be made and to actually be investing into the BIPOC communities and into the outreach to the theater audiences as well. So I think a really big like comment I hear from like, ADs and stuff is that oh like our audience is like rich old white people and I'm like yeah but they're gonna die soon so who's next and um there's so much more there's so many people out there this is like a quote-unquote like multiracial country quote-unquote this is a nation state um so how do we diversify the audience so that the revenue I guess that's needed or whatever um can be there as well a lot of theaters do depend a lot on their old white rich audiences and that's a very short-sighted um method of funding your theater since as you mentioned kp the down the operative word in that sentence is old (laughs) and uh the set i'm old white but old which means that they have limited time um and theaters theaters that 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 just lean on their old white donors and, and, and patrons are going to die. Like they have no future. Mm -hmm. If they don't, if, if they're only talking to old white people, then young people, BIPOC, other white people, like those are people aren't coming because they don't want to see shit from that. You know, white old, old white people don't particularly enjoy being challenged. And that's, a lot of what you're talking about is challenging comfort. Those ADs that you don't that 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 need to step down, they're threatened because they are comfortable, and their whiteness lets them be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's something that that and and that their whiteness is something that is not usually challenged. That so when it is challenged, when they are challenged, they they go on the defensive and they would never consider stepping down. When if that's their reaction, that's why they need to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, you know, when it, when we've been dealing with this and kind of going back and forth between so many different people during the Fringe Tour, um, it really did make us feel like we aren't very welcome in Fringe spaces. So it might not be somewhere that we return to. We kind of have to see how it goes. And obviously not this year because we shut it down. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think this is uh, what KP was mentioning with the uh, the idea of the next um, calf lottery being BIPOC only. Uh, yeah, this was something that I've I've brought to calf as a um, I want it to be a collaboration with our company Rage Sweater Theater Productions. In that we suffered so much in 2019. And we still brought so much education and labor to those folks to Mm -hmm. teach them about how to do these festivals properly. Because we know in a lot of ways we already make our spaces safe. KP is one of the leaders in our community of making safe spaces and making space for Mm -hmm. BIPOC. So, like, um, I, I really hope that, you know, in this way that we're kind of speaking to it right now, that this is a way to hold them accountable to that idea that, um, you know, not obviously not for like 
the next coming year because every calf person who applied for this year will be going next year. But yeah. for 2022, make it BIPOC only can apply for just the calf lottery. It's not even for the mm. festivals. It's just for yeah. the touring. So that at least, at the very least, there's obviously like going to be issues that arise uh, for those companies too. But hopefully they're not alone in this process and that maybe there's somebody else, another company, another artist who may have similar experiences to them. And Mm. that'll make touring just a a very small percentage more accessible. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Have I mean, and, and I guess, you know, the advantage of, of this, this downtime since you shut down all the festivals um, <laughs> is that um, like those conversations, there's, there's sort of like breathing space for those examinations to happen. Now, the challenge will be to see once next year comes and the, this year is behind us and, you know, we've had our. I'm rolling my eyes. You can't see it, but we've had our black lives matter moment. We all made our statements and then seeing who follows through and calling this shit out of those who don't follow through on their statements and who just paid lip service to, to lifting up black people, people of color, indigenous people like that is, that's the challenge is, is next year who follows through and who pays the price for not. And hopefully Fringe is able to look inward and and make the changes that they need to make. Yeah, KP, I don't know if you are feeling this also, but it seemed like the, the narrative around so many theaters making these very empty statements was kind of seen, a lot of people have talked about this as like this theater reckoning. And KP mm. and I have talked about how Uh, problematic that is because like why does it take violence and death and Mm -hmm. um this amount of of visibility of that violence and death towards black folks to make those changes that isn't you know it's performative it's absolutely performative and so Mm -hmm. while we you know we this energy that has come from maybe that sort of theater reckoning is promising it's still very much like kp does this work every day like our company Mm -hmm. does this work every day we've been doing it for as long as we've been artists and now you know we hear some people in our community are like finally maybe getting it or getting it for a week or whatever it's it's like this new level of exhaustion yeah. With that, um, so yeah, I, I I'm anxious to see uh, not just the theaters if they uphold what they say they will, because we obviously know they haven't already. They put up mm-hmm. a statement <laughs> like unable to actually back their statements up in any way. But it's the community members. I, I say community very loosely because I don't think there's a com- a community of theater people in Victoria. I think there. are some people and i i don't think you're alone in victoria i mean we refer yeah. all over the place to the theater community but in very few places is there a, a community there are a number of cliques yeah mm-hmm. absolutely i i'm anxious to see if people who are stepping up 
now and recognizing like just you know just one example is what our company has been doing for for many years i i wonder if that'll continue and yeah kp i don't know what you think of that too yeah i i think i really appreciate what you said um phil about seeing if it does happen because in my brain i was like i guess it has to i mean i was like no it doesn't I've been really thinking about it and being able to hold them accountable afterwards. I, my hopes are high because I like to believe <laughs> for the future, I guess. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't say it a reckoning. And I think Pete, that's a really strong word when nothing's really changed yet. So it's not really a reckoning because the people still have their jobs. Theaters are still happening, blah, blah, blah. I remember talking to, um, someone in the community and he was like well you know like should we really like let all these theaters die like we do so much for the community and and i mean monica are like well yeah because they do so much for the white community and that's it and if they can't keep up with the times and the changes of things then yeah they have to die that's kind of how companies work in this system that we have um and i wonder if because right now like lots of people are paying attention and are doing the work but in a year will everyone who is right now being like oh yeah black lives matter um will they still pick up the like the mantle to actually get these systems deconstructed i think that's a really good question and i think that's also a question to put towards white folks and white people right now of like is this just a fad for you um or is this like a lifelong uh dedication to systemic change it's it's kind of like there, you know, any theater that produces work where both the work on stage and off in the the off stage, the backstage, the in the office, when those do not represent the community at large. If you don't, if you look out at the audience and you don't see the same people that you see outside, if you only see white people and you don't see the quote unquote cultural mosaic on stage and off stage and in the audience, you failed as a Canadian theater. Absolutely. To be quite honest. Yeah. So if 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 they can't do that, then quite honestly they deserve to fail. Yeah. I fully agree. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah. And and that's why our, our work now is really prioritizing ourselves and like the people that we want to uplift and the narratives that like we want to examine is that we, you know, we've tried doing this thing where you make a show and there it's not for white people, but it's still, you know, in a lot of ways is still speaking to them knowing that they're there. Um, And now it's like, what do we need as artists to, feel seen and feel good and feel excited. And that mm. for me, like even just us being on our online zoom calls and like figuring that out as we work on a new show is so exciting because we know that these like leaders, they're not, they're not leading for us. So mm-hmm. we will just be the leaders that we need for now. And mm. uh, I hope to see, you know, all of the artists that I admire so much who are BIPOC in those leadership roles very, very soon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
Just as we start to to wrap up, there's a couple of things that I've been really curious about all the people who've been on the podcast over the since the pandemic started. And it's there are two questions that I like to ask near the end. And the first one is, how are you both doing? Funny <laughs> <laughs> how much of a loaded question that is. <laughs> I know, I know, but there's so much and there's anxiety and there's everything. How are you doing? You know, I think every day is different. But my father, he's a Gemini. And he said that 2020 turned out a lot better than he expected. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) But the further it goes along, the more I'm kind of like, okay, like things are changing. And in my like everyday life, things are changing. In like the global sphere, things are kind of changing. And I feel like change is uncomfortable and awful, but I feel like we're heading in a pretty good direction. And so in that like general sphere, I feel pretty good. How am I doing? I don't know. Mental health's fluctuating, life's fluctuating, but mm. I've been pretty lucky because I'm dating someone. So I've been alone this whole quarantine. Um, I've been able to focus on my art and not have to be perceived mm. by people. Um, going outside more sucks because people are more incensed to be yes. shitty all of the time. Um, but I feel like I've been able to like, focus. And that feels yeah. like it wouldn't have happened if life had kept going at the speed it was going at. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I'll be positive. I feel pretty, pretty okay. Yeah. Monica, how about you? I was just reveling in how great of an answer that was, KP. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Um, and your father is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I, I echo a lot of that. Um, and I am doing my best to like honor this time that I have to be home. Like I have to be home mostly because I'm, you know, compromised and, you know, I can go a small bubble, but I'm trying my best to really like recognize that bubble and to use this time to like reflect on my privilege in being able Mm. to be in this bubble to yeah, be in a relationship and have Mm. someone with me all the time. And I think this has been like a really important time for me to honor my disabled body that I'm still really getting to know Um, Mm. because disability is so fluid all the time and so yeah what it means to me to be doing the work that I do and uh, honoring my body in a way that I've never truly gotten to before like I'm sick regularly like most of the time because I'm chronically ill but in quarantine most of those symptoms have been like next to nothing, which really hmm. tells me that it is it is the way that this capitalist structure of a white supremacist hmm. world is created is that it's not it's not for me. It's not for a lot of people. Um, and so being able to, yeah, refuse things that aren't in service of health and safety and well-being is a privilege. So, hmm. yeah, I think that's what I'm been reflecting on and it is very touch and go every single day. (laughs) Hmm. I understand. Now, um, last question for each of you is over the past few months, what has been giving you the most joy? Mm. 
Hmm. <laughs> and you're allowed to be mushy and say my partner. You're allowed to <laughs> like if that's it. Don't don't feel like that's a thing that you're. I'm going to roll my eyes and say, "Oh, that's such a lame answer." That's a wonderful answer if that's your answer. Yeah, I guess that's the really big part of my answer is my partner has been giving me so much joy and like being able to sit and spend this time together because we started dating like two weeks before I went on this tour in the summertime oh. and <laughs> they were in school finishing up. So we've been like really, really busy. And this is the most time we've had to like sit and be together and you know, love each other's company and love each other and like talk and figure we're, we're focusing on art and my plants and like slowing down and really figuring out who I am and who we are. It's been like really, really nice. So yeah. It it does change a relationship though, doesn't it? Because you, from, I was finding with, with my girlfriend, we met in November and like normally we would, at this point, you would still be like hiding, kind of hiding behind activities. Mm. You know, let's go ahead and do something. Let's go ahead and do something. But it's been a very, um, you've the been a, we've been able to to sort of create a foundation of of quiet intimacy and just being in a way that I think we wouldn't be able to if the world was quote unquote normal. Definitely, definitely. We talk often about how like we wouldn't be where we are in our relationship relationship right now if the mm. world hadn't slowed down and yeah just made us be together and yeah yeah monica how about you what's giving you joy a lot of the same things um tony is you know my best friend in the whole world so i'm so privileged to be quarantined with him um (laughs) as we look at adoptable dogs nonstop online (laughs) (laughs) um and uh KP and their partner are are like our bubble. So, oh, we, that's so nice. You know, we've seen each other very minimally, but just being able to yeah, have that chosen family present mm-hmm. in your life and like no matter what, we're checking in on each other and we love each other like that is really important and I'm very lucky too that I have my my direct family in the city, so I've been able to to see them a little bit as well, but yeah, I think that's mostly what's bringing me joy too. Is is knowing that uh, that love is really, really strong, and uh, also Animal Crossings. <laughs> I hear you. That game came out at the exact right time. Talk about serendipity. Well, I think that like if it wasn't us that was responsible for like all of every theater shutting, <laughs> it was the creators of Animal Crossings. That could very well be the answer. It's possible. Monica, KP, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having us. This was lovely. Yeah, thank you. It was good to catch up and talk to everybody. This has been a Homebody Productions production.